ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 109, Beyond the Veil. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Muaupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we talked about karakia, rituals and magic, specifically around matakite and makatu, divination and witchcraft, respectively. Today, we will be talking about the wairua, the underworlds and the spirit's journey after leaving the body. However, content warning that we will be covering a lot of stuff around death, tangihanga and all of that. It's not terribly graphic or anything, but I know for some people it may be a bit of a tapu subject. In the past, we have talked about the wairua as being the spirit or the soul of a person, and that is more or less correct. Best says the word wairua denotes shadow or any kind of image or thing that is amorphous or intangible. Hence why it is used to refer to the soul. Though it should be noted that Māori saw the wairua as being still quite material or tangible, to the point where it could be seen by certain gifted individuals, those who had matakite. They even believed it could be killed or destroyed. Some people have thought that Niwarika's people in the story of Mata'ora are some form of wairua, and since they were tattooing each other, Best posits that there must be some material nature to the wairua, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do that. Typically, the wairua remained in the body, but would leave temporarily during dreams, and permanently upon death. Although it's tempting to think that only humans or maybe even animals possessed a wairua, the concept was slightly more complex than that. Best mentions how Māori believed that streams and rivers have life, and if they have life, they must have wairua given the fact that they can be, quote, heard to sing, an allusion to the babbling of the hill streams, end quote. And this kind of leads me into another important concept that is similar to wairua, but not quite. Modi. Modi is the life force of a person, object, entity, group, community, ecosystem, natural process, or anything that is alive or could be deemed alive in some way, either literally in the sense that biological creatures are alive, but also metaphorically in the way that a village, forest, or the cycle of night and day is alive. Movement, heat, sound, they can all denote modi of a thing or of the world around you more broadly. Modi is distinctive from a wairua in that when someone dies, their modi ceases to exist, whereas the wairua continues to live beyond the body. Quote, 
The earth and the heavens, the heavenly bodies, the elements, all natural phenomena, the seasons, day and night, the ocean, streams, lakes, all possess this vital, life-giving principle. End quote. Modi is also different to Waidua in the sense that it is kind of dormant and doesn't have the same almost quote-unquote intelligence as the Wairua, which is more active. The Wairua tends to respond to things in the physical and spiritual worlds. Modi can also be called the quote-unquote divine spirit, as it is directly inherited from the gods as the breath of life, Tihei Modi order. As such, Modi is inherently tapu. The breath of life Modi is not to be confused with the physical, material Modi found in the mortal realm. Best describes quote-unquote protective talismans as being material Modi, as opposed to the immaterial Modi inside all living things. He says these were designed to protect the immaterial Modi in a person. He describes these as being a stone or piece of wood that is granted the powers of protection through ritual or karakia, which puts the wairua of an ancestor into the piece, and they would protect their living descendant from things like makatu or being killed violently. Some of these talismans were permanent objects that someone would hold on to, but other times they were used temporarily. Such as, if someone was going to perform a divination ritual that would present a significant risk to their modi, the talisman would be used for that ritual and then discarded afterwards. But not before the tohunga released the tipuna inside the object and rendered it inert. Another example is if someone was travelling, a modi would be created to protect them, and then discarded after they returned from their trip. In the case of travelling, they would be warned not to lose the talisman, or an enemy could find it and use it against them. Places could also have a physical modi. For lakes and rivers, it was often a small stone that had the mana of the body of water placed into it by a tohunga, and then hidden so that no one would find it and mess with it. This was particularly important for bodies of water that were used for food gathering, so anywhere that held lots of fish, eels and shellfish. The Modi would then ensure that the lake or river remained vibrant and bountiful, as well as stopping from anyone using makatu to kill the fish or anything like that. Eelers and other fishermen would put a Modi near their hinaki to attract fish, and the Tomata Atua, or Kumara gods that were put in gardens with the crops, were also a form of Modi to help them grow. Going back to the immaterial, personal modi, anything that affects the tapu of a person also affects the modi, usually negatively. This is also why strict tapu was observed in certain situations, not just for the fear of punishment, but also due to the immediate spiritual harm. 
The example Best gives is that during snaring season, a forest may be under strict tapu, and if anyone would cook food within the forest, it would be a violation of that tapu, causing the gods to no longer protect the forest, and thus its modi would be diminished, as birds leave the area and plants no longer bear fruit. As Māori culture was influenced by Europeans and Christianity more and more, many saw this as a diminishing or polluting of the Modi of the Māori people as a whole, and was why the Europeans were dominating the archipelago. Quote, the vital principle of the forests has been destroyed, or much weakened by the abandonment of tapu, and the godless ways of the Europeans, hence the great diminution of the number of birds. End quote. In other words, abandoning the old ways of tapu was causing the gods to abandon Māori, and hence why the forests were no longer full of food. This, of course, wasn't too far from the Western scientific view. Bird populations were being reduced due to primarily habitat loss from European industrialization. Stuff like timber logging, the draining of wetlands, agricultural intensification, and that's to say nothing of the active hunting of birds and the introduction of predators like rats and stoats. The ho is a similar concept to Modi in that it is a kind of living essence, though Best describes it more like an aura. As such, the ho is a bit stickier. It can stay in places where a person has walked or sat, and then be picked up and used to do various things with, either good or bad. Ho can also mean wind or air, so there is a similar connection to how Modi is connected to breath. Footprints were a common place to obtain ho, as they were a visible sign of where someone had been, and a bit of dirt from someone's footprint was seen as, quote, an excellent medium in wizardry, end quote. As such, people were known to avoid muddy paths, or walk through water whenever they could, to avoid leaving prints. Ho also kinda means the personality of a person or thing, such as the ho of a speech, or could mean something akin to someone's fame. All of these sorta combine to mean the vitality of a person or thing, similar to the way that the Mexican belief is that someone dies a second death when no one remembers them. The ho, the vitality of someone or something, is always there as long as there is someone who knows it. When someone dies, their modi ceases to exist, but their waidua leaves to go on a great journey north. We will get to that journey in a minute, but first, let's talk about what happens to the body of the deceased, and how those left behind honour their memory through tangihanga. Commonly shortened to tangi, tangihanga is today translated into funeral, 
but is actually from the root word meaning to cry or lament. It's the way that Fano and the wider community say goodbye to their loved ones. Assuming someone died of sickness or natural causes rather than on the battlefield, it wasn't uncommon for Fano to gather around someone who was on the cusp of passing, a state known as Whakahemohemo. Once they had passed, naturally, cries and wails would be heard to farewell their spirit on their journey. Their body would be put in a seated position, possibly being tied up a bit to help with this, and set against a pole facing the east, towards the rising sun. Here, they would remain for several days, and during this time, mourners would come in and pay their respects, which could be people coming from nearby villages, depending on how important the person was. Karakia would be spoken over the body to ensure the wairua reached the afterlife, and to aid in its journey. If it was thought the person died as a result of makatu, the tohunga would find a fern stalk and use it to hit the body, saying, quote, Here is your weapon by which to avenge your death. End quote. The idea being that this would help the wairua seek out the person who killed them and avenge themselves. Although this entire, sometimes weeks long period was called tangihanga, The part that was more organised and funeral-like was towards the end. Keep in mind that most of this was done if the person was a rangatira or of similar importance. People gathered around the body, the women in the front, everyone holding green leaves. There would be singing and lamenting for the deceased, with their clothes laid out for them, along with gifts to be buried with, ponamu, jewellery and that sort of thing. A wakahuia containing feathers and a model of a carved waka may also be presented. A bent stick would be set up nearby, called a hara, so that anyone who walked past would know that a chief had died. The clothes would be put into the wakahuia and kept by the family while the body was buried, presumably because they contained a portion of the rangatira's mana. Other gifts that were buried with the deceased, what archaeologists would later classify as grave goods, could be objects like shell necklaces, the handle of a toki, and later, once Tareo had been translated into a written language, manuscripts of tribal history. Throughout this, it was common for family members, especially women, to cut their limbs and torso as a sign of mourning. It was seen as a, quote, token of affection, esteem and sorrow, end quote. You might recall that this is how red rocks in Wellington was formed from the daughters of Kupe cutting themselves in mourning, thinking he was dead. There were also often speeches that probably weren't too dissimilar to Western eulogies, in that they would talk about the life of the person and farewell their spirit into the next life.
Interestingly, there was almost no fanfare for the actual burial itself, with only a few people being invited. Part of this was to do with the tapu of burial sites, but also so that these sites didn't become common knowledge, and thus their location potentially leak to enemies, who could use them for makatu, turn the bones into fishhooks, flutes and the like, or otherwise just defile the sites. The next day, some men would go hunt a small bird and gather some reeds, presenting these to the tohunga at the gravesite. The tohunga himself would pick some toitui and place it in the ground, pointing it towards Hawaii, so that the spirit of the deceased knows which way to go. This also helps the rangatira return to the material plane when he wants to help his whānau as an atua. When buried, the body would be left there in the fetal position until it had mostly decayed. The skeleton would then be exhumed and the bones cleaned before being sent to another tapu spot, such as a cave, which often acted like family tombs. The location of these caves were a closely guarded secret as well. Before the bones were taken to their final resting place though, they would often be put on display for the public to see them, being decorated with feathers or dyed harakeke. This exhumation and cleaning process was obviously very tapu, and as such no one would eat or do any other noa things during this time. Exhumation would be accompanied by a feast, which had different hangi pits for different groups of people based on rank, with some of the food being offered to the deceased. If anyone was to eat food from the wrong hangi, it would be a very bad sign and bring misfortune, so everyone was very careful. It was common for a karakia to be spoken before eating this feast, as that would remove the tapu from it and allow it to be eaten. When Christianity was brought to Aotearoa, this led to an interesting observation by Māori, as they thought Christians were removing the tapu from the food at each meal when they said grace. While all of this very sombre mourning was going on, the wairua had already left, and was making its way into the next life. The way it did this was by physically walking up to Ika Amawi, the North Island, to Renga, the jumping off point. Today we know this as Cape Renga, the very northernmost part of the North Island, where the lighthouse is and the cool yellow sign that points to all the different places. However, in the past, this has been a place of great spiritual importance, and in some ways is where the veil of the material and spiritual worlds is at its weakest. Or, in other interpretations, is where the literal entrance to the underworld is located. Before a wairua gets there though, they will encounter two hills. The first is where the wairua takes off its clothes and lets out laments. The second is where the soul, quote, turns its back on the land of life, end quote.
heading further north, they reach the cape itself, which is basically a large cliff face that looks over the ocean. There, they encounter a Pahutakawa tree that has two large roots descending down into the sea. The Waidua will look into the sea, waiting for a gap in the seaweed before jumping into its murky depths. This is the point where they pass through into the underworld, Rarohinga. When they emerge, they come to a beach and a river. Crossing the river, they are greeted with a hakari, possibly prepared by their already departed tūpuna. If the wairua eats the kai, then they can't return to life. This account was given by Shortland, who best claims combined aspects from several slightly different stories. Some say that one of the two hills is located in the underworld, and others say that the point of no return is one of the hills, not the food. In any case, this story varies between iwi, and Shortland's version likely comes from Natiawa. Looking at other versions given by Best, it seems that the overall idea is basically the same, but the specifics vary. Such as whether the soul jumps or climbs down, or whether the soul must drink from the river to not be able to return to life. Other beliefs tell that the Waidua of past ancestors will come up from Rarohinga and retrieve the deceased, rather than waiting for them in the underworld. As mentioned, Ranga is a physical place that you can actually go to. There are lots of spooky stories from Māori travellers in the far north spotting other groups of people who disappear when they get close and reappear behind them. Spirits on their way to Cape Ranga. So when those early European explorers said they were going to go take a look, Māori were naturally quite distressed, as they didn't want them to fuck around with anything and stop what they saw as the natural process. However, Māori guides did take them to Cape Ranga, and were able to point out various physical features, like the hole in the rock that souls must go through to enter Rarohinga and mentioned that they always catch fish here that are red due to the kokowai, red okra, that these souls put on themselves. I assume this fish is tamuri, snapper, since it's quite warm up there and they are known to like the warmer water. Entering Rarohinga wasn't the end of the journey though, since there were multiple underworlds, usually the same number as there were heavens. Like the heavens, the different underworlds were kind of thought of to be stacked on top of each other, except you were going down, not up. The first underworld isn't really under at all. It is the world of trees and birds, ruled by Tane Mahuta. So, that is to say, our world. The second underworld is similar in that it is the dirt of the first underworld, 
This is the realm of Rongo Matane and Haumea Tikitiki. The third is where Hine Nui Te Po lives, and the fourth is where Fedo lives. Hine Nui Te Po apparently rules over both these levels, so I'm not sure if Fedo is an unwanted guest of some kind. Rohe, the wife of Maui, is apparently a quote, vengeful goddess, killing all spirits who come her way, end quote. She rules over the 5th, 6th, and 7th underworld. The 8th underworld, interestingly, has no name unlike the others, but it is ruled by Meru, who also rules the other final two underworlds. She kills timid spirits that come down this far, though it's probably unlikely they would want to go this deep, and more unlikely that they actually made it. The ninth and 10th underworld are called Toki, Worm, and Meto, extinct. So they were pretty grim places. Unlike the heavens, which historically slash mythologically had very few outsiders visit, the underworlds had actually quite a lot, like Maui and Mataora. When a wairua entered Rarohinga, they would more or less become corporeal again, to the point where they would be able to do all the normal things they did in life. Grow food, make clothes, tattoo each other, play games, and so on. Essentially, after someone dies, they would live in the next life very similarly to what they were doing on the material plane, usually in the upper levels where it was safer. Not everyone would get to enjoy everlasting life, though. It is also thought that souls would gradually make their way down into the deeper underworlds, each level getting worse than the last. Some of these levels would have dangerous beings that preyed upon souls or inflicted punishment until they made it to the final level, which had no light or food, where the soul would be finally destroyed. However, this wasn't a universal belief. Most other religious concepts in Te Ao Māori refer to all spiritual punishment occurring when you are alive, and that once you made it to the afterlife, you're all good. You know what does heavily talk about spiritual punishment after you die, though? Christianity. That brings me to another interesting aspect of the Māori afterlife. There was no bad place, such as hell. Māori didn't believe in post-mortem spiritual punishment, so they thought that everyone got a chance at everlasting life, more or less. There were some caveats. What they believed was that there was a good place, Rarohinga, and an even better place. You could go up into the heavens. And not just any heaven, Toi Onarangi, the topmost where Io resides. This upper spirit world was less well known to Māori. Most people would know of Rarohinga. 
Best says that this is because the upper spirit world is more quote-unquote aristocratic, and its knowledge was held by the Farewananga. Though a Wairua could ultimately choose where it wished to reside after death. Since those that went to the upper heaven came under the protection of Eeyore, no harm would come to them. But for those that went to Rarohinga, they would have to contend with Fedor. He's one of the caveats I mentioned. Though to this end, they had Hine Noi Tepo to protect them, as that was her job. Hine Noi Tepo is probably more commonly known today as a negative deity, the one who ensured that all humans die due to stopping Maui conquering death. She is sometimes portrayed as vengeful or wishing ill on humans, and takes her vengeance by way of death. However, the more correct teaching, depending on who you ask, is that she is the spiritual protector of humans, ensuring that no harm befalls their wairua in the underworld. Although Rarohinga was a bit more dangerous, choosing to go up with Eo wasn't without its downsides. If someone chose their eternal resting place to be up instead of down, they would gradually lose their memory of their mortal life until they forgot it entirely. We aren't sure why this would occur, but if I had to take a guess, it would be down to the highly tapu nature of the uppermost heaven, and that it isn't really a place for mortals. So to live there, the somewhat mortal wairua needs to transcend into something different, something removed from the earth. Another interesting little tidbit is that in most Polynesian cultures, raro, the root word for rarohinga, can translate to under or the underworld, but also it can translate to west, the direction of the setting sun. The rising sun in the east was always seen as a beginning, a symbol of new life. So West was seen as an ending, a symbol of death. However, Māori have a slightly different translation. They keep the idea of the East symbolising new beginnings, and while Raro also translates as the underworld, it doesn't translate to West. Instead, in te reo Māori, it's North since that is the direction a wairua heads after death. Additionally, many other Polynesian cultures have their quote-unquote casting-off places on the western side of the island. Why Māori had a shift in language and concept, we don't know. Beliefs in Te Waiponamu, the South Island, were slightly different again, in that some believed that Rarohinga was at a lake surrounded by hills, rather than at the topmost point in the North Island. 
This makes sense, since knowledge of the North Island for those iwi was a bit more limited. And if you know the geography of the South Island, a lake surrounded by hills just fits a bit better. There, the spirits would coalesce into their material forms and live out their days more or less as normal. After some time, these spirits would die again, and in so doing, would pass through a narrow passage, where two beings called Tuapiko and Tafaitiri would be trying to catch them. Only wairua that were fast enough would make it through, with slower ones being caught, though Best doesn't know what would happen to them. After they passed through, the wairua would re-enter the material plane and go through various stages of reincarnation, appearing mostly as insects. Moths would sometimes be called wairua tangata for this reason, as they were seen as the final stage of this reincarnation cycle. Once a moth died though, we aren't sure what happened. To finish up, I just want to quickly add something that a few of you may be wondering about, especially if you have been through the New Zealand school system like I have. When I was at school, I was taught that the Māori afterlife was in Hawaii, the place that Māori came from when they sailed to Aotearoa. This was explained in that there were two Hawaiikis, the physical place Māori used to live, probably Tahiti, and the spiritual one that they return to when they die. It's a nice circular concept of returning home, and you can see elements of it in what we have talked about in this episode. So, why haven't I really mentioned it until now? Well, quite simply, it's because none of the sources talk about it at any great length. But Best does mention it briefly. So we know that, at least by his time, the afterlife was sometimes referred to as Hawaii by Māori. However, Best says that this isn't a reference to Hawaii specifically, or any sort of geographical or even spiritual place. Rather, it is used in a similar way to tapor, meaning the unknowable. It's the abstract sense that the location of Hawaii is unknown, and thus the wairua had gone somewhere beyond. Somewhere that we can't reach anymore. Somewhere we must all go in the end. Next time, we're going to remove the tapu of this episode with something a bit more light-hearted. It isn't October, unless you're listening to this in the future, when maybe it is, but that doesn't matter to us because we're going to be talking about the spooky and fantastical. From goblins and fairies to demons and ghosts. We will discuss the things that stalk the bush in the darkness of night and why the gods aren't the only thing you should fear. 
If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaltero.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairi tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>